The UK is entering another economic lockdown because of COVID-19. The government is supporting people with their, an income support scheme, not to the level that they did earlier in the year, but they are covering a chunk of people's wages. That kind of financial support, critical during COVID, could be extended beyond the crisis. And as that wider economic impact is being talked about, so are a couple of mechanisms to give the whole population an income. The universal basic income and a jobs guarantee scheme. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast I wanted to give you some background on those two main schemes. This is a kind of economics for doctors episode. To get you up to speed, I'm joined by Martin Hencher, who's an Associate Professor of Health System Financing and Organisation at Deakin University in Australia. Martin's the author of a just-published analysis on the universal basic income and job guarantee schemes and how they might promote health. It's called COVID-19, Unemployment and Health. Time for deeper solutions. And as always, I'll put that link in the podcast text. But first, here's my interview with Martin. I wanted to open up this conversation by picking out a little uh, quote that you've got quite near the beginning of the article. You said, Unemployment and economic adversity are intimately related with despair and lack of hope. And that's been increasingly linked with mortality, the rise and severity of the US opioid epidemic. Now, in that, there is one little bit that I wanted to ask you about. Um, Often I hear this and I'm wondering, is there a conflation happening there? Is unemployment, the lack of, you know, getting out of the house, going and doing something for eight hours a day, um, being conflated with the outcomes of unemployment, the financial precarity and perhaps some diminished social standing. I just wondered what your your thoughts about that are. Okay, so that's a very, that's a great question. And I think the, uh, I don't think they're being conflated, but there is a complex set of factors at work which link um, particularly unemployment through to various kind of adverse social and health outcomes for people. So um, clearly uh, at one level is is the, the sort of most obvious and direct mechanism, which is for many people in many countries, um, unemployment is likely to be the quickest route to poverty uh, in most uh, high income countries. Falling into poverty probably does not mean you are actually going to starve. Um, however, you know, there's now many decades of work on the importance of relative poverty. So relative deprivation. If you have much less than those around you or than the society around you, that in itself can lead through a variety of mechanisms to poorer outcomes and poorer health outcomes and not just poorer mental health outcomes, which it's perhaps easier to understand, uh, but even to directly 
poorer physical health outcomes and as you as you mm. as you identified part of that absolutely is about kind of relative social status um and you, you know what that does for us for our self-worth and our sense of purpose etc is there actual value sort of intrinsic value in work so that's again that's that's a great debate um and of course uh i think um we've increasingly been talking about the problems of let's call it poor quality work you know i think at a personally i do believe uh you know the evidence suggests you're more likely to get have good or have better health and mental health outcomes in a job than out of a job but does the quality of the work you're doing have an impact on that and the meaningfulness of your work well absolutely i think that that's that's also that's also clearly true mm. and that's just an interesting thing to think about when we are wondering about supporting people through a universal basic income or some sort of job guarantees if we sort of put initially those those wider economic arguments aside and what is better for an individual i suppose that's that's perhaps quite fundamental to to which side yeah. you might want to choose no, absolutely and we'll perhaps come you know when we talk about job guarantee and universal basic income later we can talk a little bit more but you know the these programs and some of the reforms that are being discussed are of course not just about their impact on individuals they are also about what are going to be their systemic and collective effects mm, yeah now for people who might not entirely grasp the difference between a, a, a universal basic income and a jobs guarantee um Maybe you could talk us through the, the difference, perhaps with some examples. Uh, the, the concept of a job guarantee is pretty simple, really. Essentially, the, the government would offer, uh, really provide a standing offer of work to anybody who wants to take a job guarantee job. Okay, And those people will be given work at a, uh, a set wage, usually in most of the proposals, usually matching um, either the minimum wage of the country or perhaps in the case of the US, maybe in the process trying to push up the minimum wage a little bit, but at, at a at a relatively low level of pay, but offering the kind of also offering the kind of basic benefits that um, what maybe now we'd think of as more permanent employment would offer. So offering some paid leave, um, offering paid sick leave, if you're in America, offering some kind of healthcare cover through the package, those things which typically uh, are not available to people in the gig economy and are not uh, increasingly not available in the kinds of work like where people are on zero hour contracts those those kinds of things and then using them on a variety of yeah in maybe old-fashioned language public works schemes now you know whether that'll be building new hoover dams i'm not so sure but that could be anything from literally constructing things through to actually maybe even care work presumably there's also a pressure then on employers to offer better you know standards for their for their employees 
if McDonald's can't recruit um, because the the minimum that um, they're offering is not as good as the minimum that the Jobs Guarantee is offering, they will have to exactly, that and that's that's a very uh, very. Um, direct part particularly in the the u.s proposals that's a very direct objective exactly so um you know uh other employers will need to match or at least you know come close to matching the basic conditions and pay Mm. of, of the job guarantee if they if they want people then also the idea is that um when economic conditions are better uh you know and there are labor shortages that private firms need to fill well then they need to they can up their rates and start pulling people away from the job guarantee um so in a in a, an economic boom you know the number of people on the job guarantee will dwindle dramatically whereas in a recession clearly it will the number requiring it may go up quite quite rapidly now the universal basic income is as <laughs> as the name suggests an income um for everyone uh, at a basic level um now i suppose with that the main question might be what is that level what how much should um should the government provide to to people um and again uh other other places where this has been tried out on a kind of large scale i know there've been a few small scale ones so yeah um tell us a little bit more sure. about ubi okay so um yeah so the, so a ubi scheme as as you say there's there's three key characteristics um everybody gets it it's unconditional and you can do what you want with it but as you say, the literally the, the trillion, multi-trillion dollar question, depending where you are, is what's the right level? So I think the way the way this is typically approached at the moment is usually by thinking in terms of what is a given country's kind of poverty line. Most proposals for UBI pitch it around that poverty line level on the basis that, okay, look, you you will therefore receive at least the amount of money that would get you just over the poverty line. And then, you know, what you do from there is, is, is up to you. A number which is bandied around a lot in current American thinking, um, 12,000 or just over $12,000 a year, so roughly about $1,000 a month. And that that's based on a sort of standard US poverty line calculation of $12,700 per year from, I think, 2017. Mm. I think the, you know, the, the sense is much less than that is not going to make a material difference to anybody. Um, more than that, as well as affordability questions, I think there's realistically there's probably increasing debate about well, what is you know why would you give people increasingly generous amounts? The politics of UBI is in its infancy, I think, in in kind of wider political debate, shall we say? Mm. Now, uh, you've sort of uh, trailed this a little bit there, but. Obviously, when you're looking at these, they're quite fundamentally different. Um, and you set out in the article uh, very clearly why governments might pursue each one, from a, 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 a especially from a health point of view. Um, 
But affordability seems to be where proponents really need to be most persuasive. Um, how different are they in terms of uh, affordability? You know, does a jobs guarantee, is that self-funding in some way because you're actually creating economic input? But then, you know, universal basic income presumably yep. does the same. So I just wonder how, how, those, how those play out, how sure. they balance. Okay, so that, um, I mean, in many ways, that's the central question. What, as a sidebar, one of the reasons that these things are starting to be discussed more widely now is that views are changing quite quickly on macroeconomic policy and indeed on our underlying model of how the macroeconomy even works, which is opening up some of these these mm. discussions, and, and I think we'll we'll come back uh, to that. Now, clearly, look these these programs. Of course, of course, they cost money. Um, a job guarantee is always going to be targeted to a much smaller number of people than a universal basic income by definition. I'll maybe talk about compare two proposals for the US, which have been costed in, I wouldn't say they've been costed in the same way, but they give us cost estimates, which I think it's plausible, allow us some comparison of, of the order of magnitude. Um, so uh, a kind of current proposal for a federal job guarantee authored by, among others, people, Stephanie Kelton, who is Bernie Sanders' sort of chief economic advisor. Their model is pre-COVID. So this, this was not thinking about kind of depression levels of unemployment. This was perhaps thinking about more normal levels of, of unemployment, but, you know, be that as, as it may. Um, they were suggesting that a, a federal job guarantee program um, would have a, a net cost to the federal budget of about 1.5% of US GDP, so GDP being gross domestic product. Um, so, you know, that's a lot of money, but 1.5% of, of annual GDP is, you know, well within the envelope of, of kind of existing public spending. Um, so if we think about UBI, pitching at a UBI of $12,000 per adult, uh, and I think from memory, $6,000 per child. Now, that gives um, a, a gross cost uh, of 14% of GDP. So that's obviously, you know, that's a whole order of magnitude, nearly 10 times more than the, yeah. than the job guarantee. However, all would agree that that gross cost is not the final story. And there's two factors which kind of reduce the gross cost. The first factor is presumably if you implemented a UBI, you would simultaneously dispose of a lot of current welfare spending programs. So you would actually be um, making quite significant savings in current areas of welfare uh, spending. But at the same time, because it's universal, obviously a, a large proportion of the people receiving it will actually be people who are employed taxpayers and in fact you know some or from, for the highest paid people even perhaps most of what they receive in UBI payment will in reality actually be taxed straight back out of their pockets again mm. and go, go back into the government and, and that's that's fine nobody would be pretending otherwise um, so 
one estimate suggests then that the net cost, once you've done all of that, the net cost of a UBI might be down to as little as 3% of US GDP. Um, look, I, I'm, uh, I would not pretend to have done that kind of modeling myself. I suspect it probably wouldn't be quite that low myself, but that it would be less than 14%, yeah, for sure. At the same time, whether you're talking about a job guarantee or a UBI, one thing that really is important to say is is that uh, during a recession or a deep depression, um, the aggregate demand that either of these schemes would put back into the economy would be a major uh, what they would call a counter cyclical force pushing back against recession. Absolutely, it, it would. Uh, yeah. I mean, you tread this a little bit in there, but um, I mean, one of the, the considerations as well is that by pumping money into the economy at that lower level, you will, you know, more people will have more money to spend on things, prices will go up, that sort of inflationary. Um, pressure will increase. Now, you, you talked a little bit about um, new thinking around the economy, and that brings us to uh, modern monetary theory, which you do reference in the article. And I think I've heard a little bit about this and about why perhaps some worries about that inflationary pressure uh, might not stand. So could you talk to us a little bit about what is monetary theory and, and how is it sort of changing our perceptions of, of what happens okay. in the economy? All right, I will do my best. And I, 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 I do not claim <laughs> to be a modern monetary theorist, but uh, I, I've... Um, you know more I've, about I've, it I've, than yeah, me. <laughs> so so um, modern monetary theory is very concerned with money. And one of the most fascinating things um, about economics and the study of economics um, is that um, sort of standard, what we would call neoclassical economics, the sort of standard economics most people learn in their undergraduate degrees, um, has a really remarkably limited amount to say about money, which is fascinating to lay people because you would be forgiven for thinking that money was pretty central to <laughs> economics and the economy. So modern monetary theory uh, comes back and, and says, starts from what is money? What is the purpose of money? But in particular, how does money get created and how, how does money operate? And the central kind of uh, proposition of uh, modern monetary theory is that money, first of all, is created by the state um, and that it is created by the state as a way, you know, and this is talking about going right back into deep history when money was first invented in sort of Assyrian and Babylonian times, but it was uh, invented as a way of kind of managing debts and tribute, etc. The government creates demand for money by making you pay your taxes in their money. So we, you know, I can't turn up to the Australian tax office with a sack full of, of carrots from my vegetable patch to pay my tax <laughs> bill. I have to pay them in Australian dollars. And the only people who make Australian dollars 
are the Reserve Bank of Australia, who are wholly owned by the Australian government. But it has a crucial consequence, um, which is its biggest point of departure from sort of standard economics. And that is that modern monetary theory says a government which prints its own sovereign currency and a government which does not tie the value of its currency to somebody else's currency, that government can never actually run out of money. Okay, so a government can never go bankrupt. It can always make more money. That is not the same as saying a government can never get into trouble and will come back to that, but it mm. literally says a government can never run out of money because it's the government that makes money. And that is uh, causes uh, a shiver of fear or, or more to run down the spines of, of kind of regular e economic commentators because they immediately point to hyperinflation and Weimar and Zimbabwe yeah. and all of this kind of stuff. But the real issue here is that very quietly over the last kind of 10 years or so, pretty much all the world's central banks have in one way or another through kind of published reports or discussion papers or through uh, speeches by their governors and members of their boards, pretty much all of them have come out and admitted that the way they create money and the way that money works is actually much more close, much closer to the I, the model of the mod, modern monetary theorists than it is to the model of of the standard uh, economic textbooks. And I think that's that's why really there's a, a head of steam now building behind many of the key concepts in MNT because actually the central bankers who are the people who make and control the money supply have pretty much all said, well, actually they're right. So where modern monetary theory differs from conventional theory um, is, is this. So conventional, or the, the, let's say the economic theories that have dominated um, much of economic thinking in the last 30, 40 years are pretty driven by ideas going back to Milton Friedman and the early monetarists, which basically say, so Friedman said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So for Milton Friedman, it was very simple that it was the amount of money in circulation which drove inflation. And if you had too much money in circulation in the economy, that's what led to inflation. Mm. Modern monetary theory says, no, inflation's not driven primarily by money and the money supply. Inflation is driven primarily by the availability of real resources, so real physical resources um, in, the, in the economy. So what they would say, the modern monetary theory view is, um, if demand for a particular good or a particular service starts to increase, but the supply of that good um, is limited, that's when you get inflation. 
because people are people are, are many people are chasing a limited supply of something and that's what starts bidding prices up uh, to um, to to drive uh, price inflation and look you know you can see uh, in during covid um, we've 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 already got classic examples of that so we've had the entire world chasing a limited supply of PPE and ventilators and things right from mm. from the beginning, which had the inevitable consequence of driving up those prices, even while um, even while everybody was trying to start up their own domestic factories to frantically start making ventilators and masks and and, and you name it. So you can see in COVID clearly that that uh, that mechanism that was nothing to do with money or the money supply. That was about scarce physical resources that everybody suddenly wanted mm. so that's the crucial uh, that's a crucial difference and what modern one modern monetary theorists suggest is that instead of controlling inflation through interest rates and central banks and monetary policy in fact we need to control inflation in a more targeted way by uh, on the one hand kind of keeping a close eye on different sectors of the economy having uh, active industrial policies to try and look at what what do we need what do we need to be investing in capacity etc but on the other hand actually using taxation so if demand is too high if we're all buying too much stuff and it's driving up inflation the modern monetary theory uh, says hey look we're going to need to raise taxes um, so that we will actually reduce demand and hence keep keep inflation within manageable bounds. So really, it's a whole different mindset that is starting um, to take hold in in economists around the world and and perhaps even in governments. Now, if we combine a sort of shift in mindset with the big upheaval that COVID's causing, you know, we're seeing, um, we're going to see rises in unemployment, it's perhaps at the moment being uh, masked by what governments are doing to support uh, people during COVID. We're likely to see um, a recession, if not a depression after this. Um, these are all things that, that lead to big changes in the way society operates. So, as someone who's interested in um, in job guarantees and, and universal basic income, um, how much of that conversation do you feel has shifted recently? And do you think we are in in line to see governments enacting one or other of these? What I think has, particularly for UBI, has really started pushing it forwards. Um, in recent years is just this very interesting phenomenon. So um, obviously, you know, we've been concerned about what, you know, what people call technological unemployment. People have been concerned about that since the Luddites and the Industrial Revolution. But, it, but in, you know, in recent times, there are, you know, it's, this is contested, but there are reasonable grounds to be concerned about the pace of automation and whether, unlike in previous industrial revolutions, whether really actually this time as everything gets automated and turned over to AI, will it actually be the case that new jobs will emerge to replace all the ones that automation has replaced? And a lot of very sensible people 
who uh, I think are not alarmist, are actually not as confident as their forebears had been in previous kind of points of inflection in history that actually we will be able to keep everybody employed under kind of business as usual as the wave of automation comes through. So UBI um, keeps on coming up from both left and right, which is what is really interesting here. And, And I think the kind of Silicon Valley billionaires and tech giants, many of them uh, have latched on to UBI as a really good way of managing the consequences of all of this sort of technological disruption that their their corporations uh, are foisting on, on the rest of the world. You know, look, my sense is, would the government's currently in power in particularly in the kind of anglosphere nations would those current governments reach for them possibly not in the next year or two um but if things take a turn for the worse if maybe those governments sort of misstep i think a couple of years down the line, I, I think there'll be a lot of, you know, particularly the job guarantee will be a much less, um, I won't say less contentious, but will be a much less left field proposal. Um, so I think, you, you know, I, I think having watched what's happened repeatedly in recent decades, um, the biggest danger across the world is that governments have pulled out all the stops to try and support people in the short term, Um, you know, with, you know, I mean, different countries have done it different ways, but everybody's been spending enormous amounts trying to keep everybody, both households and businesses afloat in different ways through the the kind of immediate period of COVID. Mm -hmm. I think the risk that some governments will fall prey to the kind of austerity um, delusion, which is enormously powerful still in the conventional economic wisdom. We must balance the budget. How will we repay all this debt, etc.? I think it's highly likely, Mm. we've seen this happen over and over again, that people, um, governments switch off the spending too early the economy then goes back into free fall. It, it happened in the 1930s. It happened again, you know, kind of after the GFC. Um, that kind of austerity experience, I reckon, is almost bound to happen personally in, in, in some countries. Um, mm. It has completely predictable consequences. So the economy will go back into free fall. Loads of people will become unemployed again. And suddenly you'll need to take even more drastic measures. And I think it's at that kind of point that particularly the job guarantee suddenly becomes a runner. Um, and, and it's very important now that we're having these discussions, I think, over the next months, years um, about putting things in place for uh, the eventuality that things take a turn for the worse. You've been listening to Martin Hencher from Deakin University talk about the universal basic income, job guarantee and COVID. His analysis, COVID-19, unemployment and health 
Time for Deeper Solutions is available on bmj.com. And of course, I'll link to that in this podcast text. That's it for this episode, but we'll be back soon with another look at economics. As COVID-19 hits and areas of the world and the country respond very differently, is this creating a sort of natural experiment which could help us answer some of our deep questions about that link between health and wealth? We'll be discussing that, as well as how piggybacking economic measurements on medical research could be a powerful tool to unlock some of those answers. That'll be available soon, so if you haven't done so, subscribe so you don't miss out on that. Uh, We're available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Have a look at bmj.com slash podcast to find out more. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.